Greetings one and all, you're listening to another Icky Procast with me, Benji, alongside the always wonderful Jamie Larson. Jamie, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm, I'm doing alright, man, I'm doing alright. It's been a busy week, we were talking about this off air, it's been a bit crazy, it's been a bit hectic, but how has your week been, mate? It's, it's been pretty hectic as well, I mean, you know, the website went live last week, ikigaipro.wordpress.com. Um, in the space of a week, we've been invited to industry parties. We've had people drop emails to us just regarding content. Um, yeah, it's been incredibly hectic. Also last week, uh, Maeve Monroe, formerly of Young Hellions, Cat Venom and the Bengal Lights, she played her first show at Leeds Wharf Chamber under the moniker, well, moniker, I say that, um, her new band called Foma Kidsmo. So it was definitely a busy one in the Benji and Maeve household. I can tell you that much for free, Jamie. I think this is what I love about you two, is that you're the most wholesome couple out. Like, you're both musically talented, you're both working in the media industry, and honestly, it's just, it's such a like, great thing just to see you guys doing what you do best, which um, is fantastic. And you actually sent me a video of Maeve playing, which was absolutely awesome. Yeah, and it got ended up getting shared on the Musai Records Instagram uh, page. No, Musai Records Instagram. It's not a page. It's a thing. It's a platform. Um, yeah, incredibly busy. Somebody has to step up and look after everyone since Thurston Moore and uh, Kim Gordon split up. So perhaps me and Maeve are, you know, taking over that mantle, so to speak. Um, big, big words. Um, <laughs> ones that will, I will probably regret saying out loud on the podcast. But anyway, on today's podcast, Jamie's going to have a chat about um, Art Brute. He went to their album launch party last Thursday. Towards the end of the podcast, we are certainly going to be playing that interview um, that Jamie had with Eddie Argos. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to delve into the world of John Carpenter after our last podcast where we talked a little bit about remakes and a halloween remake for whatever reason i ended up delving um into the world of john carpenter all of his back catalog not just about movies but also about the music and then also i mean we've plugged this enough in the vain hopes ladies and gentlemen that maybe sony will give us a bit of a sponsorship and let us get a copy of the playstation classic uh when it gets released for free if not we're gonna buy it and jamie's gonna be having a chat with us um all about his hopes and aspirations um regarding the sony playstation classic um but before then jamie how about we crack into a bit of news no it sounds like a plan mate let's get into it all right well the big one happens to be earl sweatshirt releasing his brand new single last week uh, the single itself uh, it's called Nowhere to Go. It was produced by Daryl Anthony and New York producer Adi Hakim, who, you know, people may remember was a hip-hop artist himself by the name of Six Press. Um, very, very different to Tyler, the creator's last album, Flower Boy. I mean, of course, Earl and Tyler were part of uh, the Odd Future Collective. Um, I don't know about you, Jamie, but at times I felt the beats were almost like I was about to hear an Apex twin track rather than an Odd Future track. What was your takeaway from it? I'll definitely agree with that. I think it's definitely straying away from what their usual style is. And uh, going off uh, you talking about Tyler, the creator, and Flower Boy, I have to say that's probably one of my favorite releases that he's done yet. Um, I know a lot of people aren't really too keen on it. Obviously, 
uh, considering some of his earlier work was a lot more brutal and a lot more hard. Uh, but yeah. I actually really enjoyed Flower Boy. And yeah, listening to uh, this new Earl Sweatshirt song, uh, I can definitely see what you're taking from that because, yeah, the, just the rhythmic styles, it's almost breakbeats. Uh, and the vocals themselves, it's just quite sparse and interesting. I am really looking forward to seeing what this new release is going to be like in general. Yeah, a lot of people have been uh, kind of attributing Earl's kind of uh, flow, uh, for lack of a better term. That's probably the best term I can use. Um, comparing it to a lot of mumble rappers, you know, that have, that have come out. Now, you're more of a hip-hop fan than myself, Jamie. Uh, and uh, can you hear those mumble rap kind of comparisons, or uh, is it a bit too early to make that comparison at the minute? I think I'm more leaning to towards the it's too early to make that sort of comparison. And I think a lot of people seem to, um, I guess, put the brush to a lot of rappers saying that anything that slightly deviates from their usual style and clean, I guess, uh, rhyme and I guess rhythm to most hip hop tracks, I just feel like they seem to immediately just assume, oh, this is going to be like a SoundCloud rapper type of album, which I honestly don't feel that's going to be the case. I feel like Earl's just trying to explore more, um, I guess, avenues and landscapes towards what he wants this album ideally to sound like. And I feel like that assumption is just very quick to make, especially this early on into the process, especially because this is the first single that he's actually released. Um, I can kind of see where people are going with in terms of the SoundCloud rapper style, uh, purely because of like the slurried, I guess you could call it, uh, production, which is quite heavy handed. Uh, it's yeah. very in your face, which is very, very uh, prominent in a lot of SoundCloud rapper sort of stylings uh, but in all honesty I think this is just going to be a new concept album a bit more experimental than his previous but I don't honestly feel like he's going to go down that route I mean you keep mentioning about the whole SoundCloud rapper scene you know um, Adi Hakim he's done stuff on SoundCloud before so um, I think maybe a lot of people are being drawn to that SoundCloud rapper comparison. I mean, in all honesty, Odd Future made their name through Bandcamp, didn't they? They released, uh, you know, through Tyler, uh, Hodgy Beats, the internet, everyone like that. They all released through Bandcamp, you know. We always we all thought it was the second coming of the Wu-Tang Clan with Tyler mm. assuming um, that uh, role that RZA played. Um but yeah, you, you are quite right. It, it's a bit early days for people to just jump in straight away think it's just going to be another SoundCloud hip-hop kind of, you know, not a pastiche, but kind of borrowing those elements just to make sure that Earl is ahead of the curve. But this is a guy that was ahead of the curve long, long before, you know, the rise of SoundCloud rap and everything like that. Some might say the odd future were the forerunners to the SoundCloud hip-hop scene. I mean, would you say that that's fair, uh, a fair takeaway to take away from uh, Odd Future's well, prolific work pre-signing? I, it's a it's a tough one because I feel like, yeah, possibly there is elements of that, but I feel like uh, the whole idea of the SoundCloud rapper, which is obviously the term that a lot of people are using for these types of artists, yeah. I do feel it's more aesthetic rather than the actual music itself because uh, not necessarily a lot of these artists have a similar sort of sound. I think no. the ones that I usually lump into the grouping of, I guess, SoundCloud rappers would be like your Young Leans, your uh, Little Peeps, those sorts of characters that we do see a lot. Um, I don't necessarily feel like Tyler the Creator and Earl Sweatshirt really fit into that bill. I feel no. like a lot of the time, and this is not any sort of uh, disregarding towards the style of music, because I do actually have a slight appreciation for a lot of these SoundCloud rappers, which well, you, a lot of people you, hate. I mean, you wrote an article about Joji, yeah. um, which I found incredibly interesting, because that that's, uh, predates, well, that's almost 
predates SoundCloud rap being used. And let's be honest, SoundCloud rappers use as a bit of a derogatory term of sometimes, course. which I think is very unfair, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, if anyone's going to inform me a little bit more about, you know, the, the internet uh, kind of hip-hop scene, um, uh, uh, your judgment is one that I'd certainly, you know, pick out from the crowd, to be honest with you, Jamie. I'm also quite embarrassed I used takeaway in twice in, in one sentence. So um, perhaps I better swiftly move along. But let us know what your thoughts are about um, Earl Sweatshirt's uh, new single. Where do you think he's going to go? Um, EkagaiProUKNZ at gmail.com or visit the website. You can get in contact with us through the contact page. And That's exactly what it says on the tin. Twitter as well, Benji. We've got a Twitter. It you've, is got up the, and running. you've got the Twitter up and running. Where can people visit that? And that's at Ikigai Pro, which is uh, easy, too easy. And we're already posting and up there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Has been ab- Absolutely. And also we've got Instagram, which is just a nice, easy Ikigai X Pro. Every Monday you might be wondering. We've done it two weeks in a row, Monday Man Crush. Fair enough. I've got a man crush. I had it on Kurt Russell. Um, Repairs lead singer, at, well, co-lead singer now, Martin Phillips and guitarist. He put up his man crush for today, which is Lee Ronaldo. Um, yeah, jump aboard all of the social media platforms. We haven't got a Facebook yet, but who knows? There's always time. Um, bit of tour news now, Jamie. So for our friends back in New Zealand, Put my hand on my chest there. <laughs> Take a deep breath. And for whatever reason, the national anthem has been replaced by Why Does Love Do This To Me by The Exponents. It's a common mistake to make, isn't it, mate? Uh, in New Zealand, uh, pioneers of black gaze. That's basically blackened shoegaze or, you know, very, very, very heavy shoegaze. Um, Death Heaven have announced two shows. Uh, they will be playing the 20th of February at Wellington's Valhalla, and they will then be playing the 21st of February um, at Galatos in Auckland. No tour dates announced for Christchurch or Dunedin. How do you feel about that? Because there was a little bit of contention that bigger bands don't seem to go down to Christchurch these days. Was it like that while you were living down there, mate? Uh, well, that's the kind of interesting thing, man. Like uh, One of the things that I've actually noticed since uh, moving away from Christchurch, because technically I haven't actually been in Christchurch for about three or four years. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that I'm still basic because I still get sent invites and all that sort of carry on to a lot of the gigs still running in our town. <laughs> me, but, me being one of them. Yeah, exa- exactly. But I appreciate it, Benji. I love it. I love that you think of me in that sense. Uh, but it's, it's quite interesting because I feel like there has actually been quite a turn in terms of uh, where these bands are going. A lot of people, yeah, are still remarking, oh, Big bands aren't going to Christchurch. That is a total load of bollocks. I actually completely disagree with that because some of the bigger acts that I've seen come through, uh, I've actually noticed since being in London, we've had people like the Brian's Jonestown Massacre. We've also had the Buzzcocks. A lot of bands are starting to look at New Zealand and especially Christchurch as being a viable option, especially on tour, which I think is fantastic. I think one of the other big ones that I really loved was Shellac. Of all bands, why would Shellac go to Christchurch? You would think that it would be a total blip on the touring map, but no, Christchurch, I feel, is becoming bigger and bigger for touring bands. I feel Dunedin is definitely lacking, and that's just for the better part of the fact that they don't have a decent enough uh, middle ground venue like Christchurch has. Uh, Even Wellington is suffering in that sense. I think Wellington is actually one of the biggest uh, downfalls for New Zealand touring at the moment. A lot of people would say, yes, Auckland's the big one, and it is, 
Christchurch, I believe, is actually the next. And then I feel like Wellington should be the next biggest uh, place for touring and gigging in general in New Zealand. But at the moment, there is no middle ground venues. And it's actually something that a lot of uh, news uh, articles have been written about, the fact that a lot of Wellington venues have been shut down. And not only that, Dunedin is really suffering because they've only got small venues. And then apart from that, they've got stadiums. So that's the reason why we're not seeing a lot of these big bands. So um, hopefully that may change in the future. I really do, because I feel like it's a very much missed opportunity, especially in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, uh, Austin Cunningham, uh, otherwise known as Scowlin' Wolf from Threat Meat Protocol, um, he wrote uh, quite an interesting blog about the death of the smaller venue. Mm. Um, well worth checking out. Easy, just go on to Google, search for uh, Tauranga Music Sucks. It's about SUX. Um, yeah, he did a really fantastic article about that. I, I mean, it's interesting because it's an awful long way. And also, I think what people forget about, um, not everyone, that's a generalization, of course, but I think people forget that for a lot of international acts to come over to New Zealand, that is almost off the back of a tour in Australia. Now, there's been a couple of, couple of occasions where a festival or a tour hasn't really panned out in Australia or there's been dates in Australia that's been cancelled and unfortunately that has the knock-on effect when it comes to bands touring in New Zealand so what I'd like to see is bands I mean it's a distance of course but I'd like to see bands not treat New Zealand as a means of piggybacking off an Australian tour um well easier said than done you know if a tour if a, if a couple of shows get cancelled in Australia, then look, by all means, still come to New Zealand, still come and play Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin. Um, Tauranga seems to be getting um, a lot of bands come through. They had the King Brothers not so long ago, um, Screaming Females. So uh, I, I just think it's, at the end of the day, when it comes to music, you know, be it touring or releasing, it's just managing expectations. So if you can manage the expectations of a bigger band, then hopefully we'll see a lot more and maybe that will give rise um, to the mid-range venues like you mentioned. Um, moving over to uh, the UK, though, a couple of tour dates just to remind you of. Uh, Oxygen Thief, uh, they are finishing up um, their tour as support and backing of uh, Jonah Matranga. Uh, they've got three dates coming up. So 15th of November at the Monarch in London, 16th of November uh, at the Birdcage in Portsmouth, and then the 18th of November uh, they're going over to Newport, playing La Pub. Um, Oxygen Thief, they're going to be releasing their album Confusion Species through Extra Mile Records uh, Recordings sorry, this week, 16th of November. That's coming up on vinyl, CD, and all good popular digital outlets and then finally uh, eat defeat which jamie had written about just to remind you of their tour dates they're touring with the human project 15th of november um at the windmill in ashford 16th of this month den bosch world skate center uh, 17th of november they will be playing mol el topo goes loco those last two were belgian and dutch venues by the way so they're going european jamie and then <laughs> 
And then later on this month, they'll be touring with Rehasher. They'll be playing the Hive in Manchester on the 22nd, Sticky Mike's Frog Bar on the 23rd of November in Brighton, the New Crossing in London on the 24th, and then they will be playing the Red Rum in Stafford on the 25th of November. Uh, if you need any more tour news or anything like that, again, visit our website. Um, we try and keep up with most things, don't we? Yeah, of course, mate. We always do. Well, we try yeah. our best. Like you said, we try our best. It is very hard. There's a lot going on. The rat race is intense, but we do try our best. It really is. It really is. Um, Jamie, Art Brute, tell me, how was it on Thursday? Set the scene for us. Okay, we'll set the scene. So uh, the place that we went to was Haggerston. I actually ended up taking along one of my friends. Uh, it was kind of it was a weird situation because I think you and I spoke in great detail about the fact that I'd never been to an industry sort of event like this. I think the only oh. time I've ever been to such events was uh, purely when I was touring and gigging in bands. Uh, and to be honest, most of those were set up by you as well, uh, interestingly <laughs> enough. So my whole experience is from the other side. So it's very interesting to be that person that is turning up to obviously interview a band and do this sort of press sort of scenario. So I took along one of my friends, which was great. Uh, he had no idea what was going on, which made it even more beautiful. Uh, so I basically said to him, if anyone asks you, you're our social media manager, um, purely because I was just like, oh, it'll make it a hell of a lot easier. Uh, but went to Haggerston in South London. It's quite close to, I guess you could say, what would be the area? Shoreditch. So okay. it's a nice little brewery that's just by a tube station nearby. Uh, walk in and basically within five minutes of us being there and grabbing our first pint just you know liquid courage is always nice because i was yep. absolutely terrified about doing this interview um eddie ended up walking in within five minutes i introduced myself uh we ended up going outside to uh have a quick chat we had a few brews uh and it was fantastic mate i had an absolutely phenomenal time it was really cool to talk to him i won't go into too much detail about what we actually discussed uh but of course we did talk about the new album which they have released which is the first album they've released in about seven years amazingly uh wow. which was wham bang pow let's rock out um eddie discussed a few things about um obviously not going into too much detail uh the problems he suffered in regards to going into hospital which was actually half the reason why there was uh, such a long wait between albums. Uh, we also discussed a few other things, like some of the side projects he does creatively. Uh, interestingly enough, he not only writes music, uh, he does painting, and he is actually reasonably involved in comic book writing, which I didn't actually uh, know much about until quite recently, which was quite cool. Uh, yeah, wow. fantastic. Uh, did the interview, and then we ended up having a few more beers, and then they had a fantastic Q&A session. I think the one thing I did feel quite bad about was uh, I definitely feel like there was a few people there for the free booze, <laughs> uh, which uh, seems to be, I guess, the case for a lot of these industry events, sadly. Uh, but the Q&A itself was really good. There were some good questions that were asked, and all in all, it was actually a really nice night, and it was great to hear the album in full, uh, which they were playing in the background, which I will say I am definitely looking forward to the full release of it, which is going to be very shortly, I believe, it is the 24th of November, uh, so only just around the corner as well. Do you know what? Why wait? Hi, it's Jamie here from Ikigai Pro, and today I'm in Old Street London at the album release party for Art Brute. Art Brute are soon to be releasing their new album, Wham Bang Pow, Let's Rock Out, which will be available on the 23rd of November by Alcopop Records, and I'm joined by lead singer and core songwriter of Art Brute, Eddie Argos. So thank you so much for joining us, oh, Eddie. No, thank you for having me, man. It's good. So obviously your UK tour kicked off last night. 14 dates, you're going to be playing around the country. How did last night's show at London's Boston Music Room go? Yeah, it was awesome. It's, it's a weird tour because it doesn't start till February. <laughs> so yeah, like, so yeah. The first, yeah, first time was last night. I got, you know, yeah. No, it was good. We've not played together in London in like, oh, I don't know, like five or six years. So it was, it was quite exciting. Like, oh, can I still do this? And then I got on stage 
And I started acting the prick immediately. Just like, oh yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, of course, it's, it's, you just slipped back into like, it yeah, more easily. Straight away, yeah. Like, and of course you're from South London as well, so it must be quite yeah. interesting coming back here as well. Well, yeah, well, I'm from, actually I'm from Bournemouth, South of England, but we played, we're part of that South London scene for yeah. a long time. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was nice to be back. And loads of those people were there, actually. That scene we were part of in like 2004, like Luxembourg and the boyfriends and stuff. I'm still really good friends with them. So they were, they were all at the gigs. Like, oh, that really was a community. Was and nice. was there a lot of camaraderie in that scene? And that oh, scene? yeah, for sure. It's the only scene I've ever sort of... I mean, you get put in scenes, don't you, all the time? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And it's the only one that really genuinely felt to me like we were part of that scene. It was nice. I love those people. That's no, fantastic. And it's been seven years, obviously, since your last record, mm-hmm. which is brilliant tragic. How does it feel to be showcasing your new album, Wham Bang, How Let's Rock Out, this evening, since your hiatus from releasing music as Art Brute? Yeah, it feels good to be doing it again, man. It's good. I think we had a bit of a... We didn't mean to stop. The last interview I did for the last album, I'm like saying in it, um, it's an album every year and an EP every six months from now, and then we stopped for seven years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I, did, I was a bit worried too about running out of things to write about because lots of things I write about are autobiographical. I don't want to become one of those bands that sings, you know, like I don't like touring. Touring's really boring. Like, no one wants to hear about that. So I think I need, we need to stop a little bit so I can live a life and get more, more lyrics, more stuff to happen to me. So I might write more lyrics. You know? Well, yeah, from that sense, for you personally, what was one of the biggest challenges with you writing this new album? Um, I just, I'm not very... Um, there's no pressure, you know? Because we didn't have a record label, right? no one was making me do it. Do you know what I mean? I need, yeah, yeah. I need someone to, like... Yeah, all of my, that, I think, yeah, I, I get distracted quite easily. I mean, I wrote a book, and I wrote a comic, and I wrote, like, a musical. So I, I got distracted. I think yeah. all, all the distractions were the hard thing. But then, I mean, started doing that again. It's immediately loads of fun, and I love it. Do you feel that was also part of the process? Like you said, the pressure did so. actually help with your music writing and your songwriting. Like it kind of, it was yeah. that whole thing of like, do you know what? I'm just going to smash out a song tonight. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, was, it just took, took me time really, and it was just really was like having some life happen to me, you know? Because we yeah. toured so much. Like we, what, we started in 2003, and like by 2005, we were playing like 300 times a year. Do you know I mean, so we weren't doing anything else apart from being in a band. So I just needed more life experience, I think. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I guess that goes on to my next question. Do you feel the writing and subject matters in your songs are more matured on your new album? Or do you feel like there's still some more, like, raw youthfulness still being explored? <laughs> because, like, after listening to your latest two singles, Hospital and Wham Bam Pow, Let's Rock Out, the core ideas kind of collide in a sense. Like, <laughs> listening to Hospital, it's almost like you sound almost tired and, like, restrained, <laughs> whereas Wham Bam Pow, Let's Rock Out, it's almost you're bringing back that youthfulness, like, that uh-huh. youth back to the song. A little bit, yeah. Well, I mean, I wrote the words, I was in hospital, yes. Yeah, yeah of course. Was, yeah, to be fair, you're not going to be too ingrained and confident in that yeah, sense. Yeah, I was like, I wrote all the lyrics to that hospital song in hospital when I was, I was very ill. And um, it was like a mantra to me. I kept saying, I'm going to get out of the hospital. I'm going to be unstoppable. I'm going to stay away from drinking drugs. And I, I've always got the Greek chorus going on in my head anyway. It's going to be a little sanctimonious. Like, I'll just make the band say the things that my brain is thinking. So yeah, that happened from that. But I think, yeah, I mean, I don't really, I think I've ever really grown up. I mean, Wham Bang Pow, no, all of our songs are autobiographical. So, like, I'm as mature as that album is. Do you know I mean it's like, that's my personality? So, yeah, like, I like, like last night we played a gig. I should have been going home about five or six different times. You know, I didn't get home till like five in the morning. But isn't that always a classic case? It's one of those cases where someone's like, let's go out for one drink. It's never just yeah, one yeah, drink, that's is it? it. No. Yeah, that, and that's built into my personality as well. You know? so <laughs> like, it's like, and people are like, oh, it's really good for you because the gig finished at half past ten. Like, it's not good for me because then, of course, I went out. There's so much breathing room for it. Yeah, if it finished a bit late, I would have gone home. But I had like an extra night to have. You know? So, yeah. And it's nice being back in London. I, mean, I'm not, I don't come back that often so to see all these people. They're my friends and stuff. Yeah. No, it must be great. Actually, that goes to my next question as well. Has living in Berlin made any influence on you and your musical output, being that such a cultural and artistic hub? I'm a little bit, I think. I think it's just, um, 
I mean, again, it's because everything I write is like a diary almost, isn't it? Yeah. So, like, there's like Schwarzfahrer. I wouldn't have written that because about that song is about jumping the train in Berlin, you know, not paying for a ticket. Schwarzfahrer means like black travel, like no ticket. And um, <laughs> I wouldn't have written that obviously without living there. I don't, I don't do that, obviously. No, of course not. No, 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 no. It's like illegal downloads and all that sort of yeah, thing. That's something you just don't really talk yeah, don't, about. Don't, no, no, don't, no, no, don't no. do that. But the, um, that song's... Because, like, in London, you can't just get on the train. You have to buy a ticket, you know? So that song's... You yeah, know. of course. And um, what else? Is there another one? Oh, yeah, like, Good Morning Berlin is about living in Berlin, really, and not going to bed. <laughs> it's, yeah. Kannst du bitte die Luft aus dem Glas lassen? It's one of the first German things I learned, and it means, can you please take the air out of my glass? It means, like... Got some beer in the cup. I mean, it's like that is a brilliant way yeah, of putting yeah. it. I yeah, love that. Like the Germans really have some good proverbs. Yeah, that's yeah. not even like hip. That's like old men say it, like in pubs. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And during your stay in hospital, which is a subject matter, obviously, mm. what we're talking about, one of your singles and the new album. Was your hospital say the catalyst to really get the ball rolling on the tour with Art and the album itself? Well, a little bit. I've been ill for a long time without realizing it. So. Yeah, because I, I got better, obviously, yes. after, after the hospital. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought I'd had the flu for like nine months. And I thought, this flu's not going away. You know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. I'm not very, um, I don't know, there's not much self-care with me. Do you mean? So I, thought, <laughs> I thought I'd just go to the doctor and he'd say, I'll take some paracetamol or something. So I never went. I don't really like people telling me what to do. Even, even, <laughs> even if it's doctors, who probably should tell me what to do. So I didn't like, I went to the doctor and he said, you know, go to the hospital, you're going to die. <laughs> it's like quite important. So I went to the hospital and everything. So I think after the operation, I suddenly felt like a normal person again. You know, oh, I'm sitting in colour. So yeah, like yeah, totally. I don't have to sit down every five minutes because I'm exhausted. So I think, yeah, I think without realising it, being that sick had to slow down the art production. Yeah, uh, no, fear there's, enough. There's, there's a big gap, like, there's a whole period before in the hospital. I can't really remember anything because I was, like, so ill. Yeah, that must have been so difficult, like, in, in terms of process, like, even being able to be creative. Did you find that stressful? Yeah. Times, like, feeling like there, there was, like, that thing that you just didn't know what was the monkey yeah. on your back. Yeah, everything was, like, tearing me out, and I was just done all the time. I'd, like, come in and just, like, oh, like, I wasn't sleeping. And, yeah, it was weird. But, like, it's just weird that I didn't um, acknowledge it and go to the doctors <laughs> until the very, very last minute. Do you think it's a bit of machismo, the whole thing of, like, I don't need to go to the doctor? <laughs> or is it just, like, plain, like, I just don't really care? No, it was a legitimately, like, I don't like being told what to do by anybody. <laughs> I thought you'd tell me to do something I didn't want to do. I don't know. I don't, I'm just, um, I don't know. I don't like official stuff. I don't know. I think, or maybe also, in the back of my mind, maybe I was a bit worried that I was really sick and I didn't want to find out about it. Oh, that's always the worst thing, isn't little, it? I think there's a little bit of that going on. Top. You do the whole WebMD thing where you search yeah. it up and you're like, yeah, oh, yeah, God, yeah, I've got yeah. cancer or something. And you're just like, yeah, well, oh, I God. thought, I read, I did think I did. It said I've got what I had, and I was like, oh, I can't really do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got every single symptom. Some medieval <laughs> disease that hasn't <laughs> yeah. existed for 200 years, something along those lines. definitely that. Now, I know you're a massive fan of comic books and you have mm -hmm. a single from your album, uh, Artbreak Versation, called DC Comics and Milkshakes, which is obviously a phenomenal combo, but my yeah. question is, who is your favourite DC comic character? Booster Gold. Why Booster Gold? That's a very interesting <laughs> one, and a lot of people don't seem to mention no, it. No, 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 no. Oh, we went to the, oh, when we wrote that song, we went to the DC Comics office and they asked me that question, who's your favourite character? And yeah. Dandy Dow asked me that, and I was like, um... It is Booster Gold, and they couldn't believe. They were like, "What?" <laughs> no yeah, one it's one of those almost like parody characters. He's just yeah, so far flung from the usual, but yeah. But then, he, but then he's, he's got integral, you know. He's, like, yeah. he's a time traveler. He's like, well, his son is Rip Hunter, isn't it now? Yes. So and like you know, like with New Fifty Two and stuff, he saw what was going on. I just love. I think it's a great concept that this guy 
Well, the first concept that he goes back in time, you know, he's in the future. Yeah. I'm sorry, and he steals, um, <laughs> he steals like all this stuff and goes back in time to be a superhero to make some money. Yeah. And then he gets a conscience. And then later, on top of that, that's an act as well because now he's like this amazing guy that's like saving time, so not let anyone know how important he is. He pretends to be an idiot. So yeah. I think it's quite a nice. Like it's like a nice progression of a story. Yeah, funny. it's funny. I mean, I like the Justice League International and stuff too. Oh, of so course, yeah, can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah, and he's in that. And I don't know. I just like I was on holiday when I was about ten, and I found an entire pile of Booster Gold comics, and I just bought them because it was all of them. Oh, and then brilliant. I sort of fell into it for that. Drinking chocolate milkshake, of course. <laughs> exactly. Nice. And uh, not only are you a massive fan of comics, obviously, like you were talking about before, you've actually penned your own comic, which is Course Double D. Yep. Uh, can we expect to see more published work from you in this sort of form? Uh, yeah, well, I should finish Double D, really. It ends on a cliffhanger. You did. Yeah. You really did. <laughs> I did. I'll do that. I finished that. Well, the guy that I, I wrote that with, um, Steve Horry, we had a pact. Like, his idea was Double D, and I wrote the story around it. And I have an idea for a comic, too. So our plan is for me to finish Double D now, and then we're going to do my other idea for a comic. No, it sounds fantastic. Looking yeah. forward to it. And finally, what are the future plans for Art Brute and for yourself creatively? Um, yeah, I, I paint a lot at the moment, and it's, I paint a lot around about Christmas time. So I think in my future, lots of painting is going to go on. <laughs> and then um, with Art Brute, we've already started writing more songs, so I don't, I don't want to accidentally stop again. So <laughs> I, I, I said last time, I am every year and an EP every six months. That is my plan. It probably won't happen, but I think if we, if we say that, maybe it would be at least an album every year. I've already written like a load of new lyrics. I'll have something out by February. So, nice. So that's the plan. Keep going. Don't stop. You and I both know that sometimes an industry kind of event is just a, a byword for let's all get pissed up on free alcohol. <laughs> and I do think that kind of ran true. I will say uh, it was, wasn't the case for me. Maybe it was at the start. No, I'm joking. It wasn't. I did genuinely want to go. Uh, but yeah, like like you said, it did seem like an excuse for people to get pissed up. There was at least half of them that did seem like they were just there for the free beer. But the other people that were there were dedicated fans. I kind of wish I did actually get some recordings of the Q&A because there were some people that were totally dedicated uh, to the band Art Brute. And um, it was actually quite funny because I think you and I discussed uh, what questions should we ask Eddie? And a lot of the questions that I was thinking of throwing in, which were more of the off-kilter kind of stupid questions, were actually mostly included in the Q&A there was one person who said that uh, formed a band uh, was one of their favourite songs and actually caused them to form their own band because it inspired them absolutely uh, yep of course uh, Emily Kane was brought up of course uh, with many asking you talk about this and you've discussed in previous interviews that this is a real person do you still see this person uh, to which there was a very interesting answer to that which is of course no uh, because <laughs> apparently she doesn't really like him that much well wow okay. uh, which is uh, quite funny uh, but then also a lot of people also discussed the fact that uh, he obviously has a lot of involvement with comic books, which was great. I actually got to talk to him quite a uh, bit in depth uh, more after this interview because I didn't want to keep him too long because I did feel no. a bit bad. Uh, but we did talk a lot about Booster Gold and Batman and how uh, I actually mentioned the article that I wrote for Ekagai Pro uh, about Batman, the animated series, and I actually told him about it and I told him he should check it out. And he's like, that is very funny you mentioned that because I am just about to show my young boy uh, that very series. And he's like, do you think it's worth checking out? Like, is it appropriate for a child? And I was like, yeah, it's totally appropriate for a child. And I think the great thing is, um, amongst this cartoon that is obviously uh, directed at kids, there's a lot of adult themes that, of course, kids will mostly miss. But adults who have a bit more of an understanding and can make the connections, it does actually portray itself as quite a gritty cartoon that can still play off as an early morning serial cartoon, I guess, for ch like children, which is great. Yeah. It's it's one of those series that seems to like just transcend, you know, like it, it has got slightly more mature things uh, that adults can dig into. Um, of course, you know, it's got all the action that you'd want for a Saturday morning cartoon, even though 
I believe that they showed it weekdays on TV too when I was a wee youngster uh, in New Zealand. Uh, it's like, have you seen the trailer for um, Ralph Breaks the Internet yet? No, I haven't. Brilliant. I mean, you look at that, and again, it plays into, you know, like a lot of good, good Disney movies. It's got that the bits for the children, for young people, and then it's got some elements for the more older kind of audience members, you know, so things that may, you know, wash over someone's head, you know, uh, at the same time, if you're a certain age, you'd totally get the reference. Part of the joy of me going back and watching old Disney movies, to be honest with you, Jamie, in fact, part of the joy of me going back and watching many old kind of cartoons and kids shows is just to pick up on those elements where I think, oh, I didn't realize what that meant as a kid, but now I'm older, I totally understand that. And it it wasn't blasé and in your face like how The Simpsons and Family Guy and South Park can be. It was very subtle and very well done. And, uh, you know, that's something I think um, uh, a lot of people appreciate about Batman the Animated Series. It just dealt with the darkness of um, the character, but not casting it too dark like how Spawn the Animated Series that was very adult if you ever caught that oh yeah definitely i completely agree with that it was uh i'm actually surprised with what they got away with in all honesty um and the venue itself signature brew apparently it's run by a new zealander i did not even know that this is some very poor research on my part obviously no 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 i only found that out through an internet argument to be honest with you jamie (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of internet arguments, yes, Halloween has been released. Uh, Yeah, it seems to be doing well in terms of the box office. Critical reviews I've tried to avoid because, uh, you know, the last time I checked out a critical review for a horror movie remake, it was just, you know, what you would expect. Um, You watched it, is that correct, Jamie? It is indeed. I did go to watch uh, the new Halloween film. And uh, do you want an honest opinion or do you want a fluffy opinion on uh, the no, film itself? I want an honest opinion. Balls Don't, to the wall. Know, balls to the wall, man. I, that's what I expect from you. An honest answer. An honest answer about the remake. Okay. Give me a second. I need to compose myself. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yep. So... I don't think I've ever actually been so furious while watching a film. Like, this this is coming from, uh, funnily enough, actually, uh, yesterday I ended up watching The Conjuring 2. I don't know why I had never bothered to see it uh, when it did come out. Uh, and I put it at the same level as that. This film was so bad in the sense where it just felt like contrived. It was predictable. I was hoping that there was going to be some sort of spin on it due to the fact that they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back, which I thought could have had potential with the characterization and I feel like there could have been something more interesting done with it but once again it's just a terrible sequel rather than even being a remake I wouldn't even consider it a remake or a reimagining and I know this is probably not a popular opinion but I would put this higher than even the Halloween Rob Zombie film I actually quite enjoyed that I know a lot of people hated it uh, but at least in that respect I felt like it had its own stylistic properties that really uh Boded well for itself, whereas this, I just felt like this was a carbon copy of the original film, except worse. Why Why did they do it? I mean, you, you mentioned Rob Zombie's Halloween remakes, yeah. and uh, I, again, I enjoyed them purely um, from a visceral kind of standpoint. Uh, you're quite right, Rob Zombie, he does have 
a uh, very uh, a certain kind of aesthetic a certain kind of uh, cinematography about him you know it, it, when he did um, The Devil's Rejects or House of a Thousand oh, yeah. Corpses that was very kind of grindhousey but in a 80s Hollywood kind of sheen all nicely packaged and everything like that um, I got the same kind of vibe from his Halloween remakes I mean I honestly thought that it was just another sequel in the vein of Halloween H2O, but mm. it's it's just basically a, a remake, essentially, with an older Jamie Lee Curtis. Is that right? Yeah, basically. I do think that, like, like I said previously, there were elements that I did find interesting, which is, of course, bringing back the character that Jamie Lee Curtis played. I know this is terrible. I should know the name of her character. Uh, but um, basically, it was so unmemorable that I didn't bother. Um Basically, the one thing that I did find interesting was the element of she ended up in the film. I'm not going to ruin too much because uh, yeah. basically it's very far set in the future. Obviously, uh, Michael uh, is obviously locked up and he is detained. And Jamie Lee Curtis's character is extremely paranoid after obviously years and years of being tortured uh, by this particular character uh, that she is constantly prepared for him to escape and get out. And of course, that's what happens. Uh but, yeah, I did like that element of it, but I think they could have played it off slightly better. Uh, there were a few twists that I didn't expect, and I will say that some of them were welcome, but for the most part, it was just a very drab film, and it was quite disappointing uh, as well, uh, due to the fact that the people that were behind the production of this film was actually Bloomhouse, who, I don't know if you know much about Bloomhouse. Do you know much about Bloomhouse there, Benji? Uh, somewhat. Yeah, so Bloomhouse has been quite successful in the sense where uh, they've released quite a few really good horror films. Uh, some of the ones that I've enjoyed the most being uh, Paranormal Activity, they were behind yep. that. Uh, Insidious, which I did enjoy points of that, but I feel like, once again, uh, they were let down further and further uh, by the fact that, of course, they just keep making sequel after sequel split. Uh, and also, I think they were behind as well. I'm not sure if you ended up seeing it. Uh, the Green Room. Did you ever watch that film? I absolutely loved Green Room. Rest in peace, Anton Yelchin. It yeah. was an oh, absolute phenomenal. That was a phenomenal a, a movie which has Patrick Stewart playing the leader yes. of a far right movement, and it was just that grim, grimy, filthy kind of you know exploitation horror that I just absolutely loved. So many people, I point them to Green Room and say, you need to watch this, you know. It's not the most original horror movies, but it's certainly fresh in its approach. But all of that talk about the Halloween remake and Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Laurie Stroud was the name of the character. Yep, that's the one. From the sounds of things, Laurie Stroud sounds like she's about to become a prepper then if she's preparing for an eventual Michael Myers meeting once again, um, which is a shame, really, because uh, having alluded to the conversation in our last podcast uh, and also the fact that I have a big man crush on Kurt Russell, I think he's fantastic. Um, I actually went and revisited the works of John Carpenter um, uh, over the course of the past week, you know, and it's not just going into uh, the Halloween series, you know. I mean... Halloween 1 and 2, brilliant. I mean, Halloween, along with a Canadian slasher movie called um, Black Christmas, uh, very much set the tone for the slasher genre. Uh, some people could argue, oh, yeah, but Benji, it borrowed from Giallo from the Italian thrillers. And <laughs> that might be the case, you know, but in terms of an Americanized kind of approach to the, the, the girl in peril, the slasher horror thing, I mean, Black Christmas, scream 
almost ripped part of that story off, you know. So I'm not going to spoil it, but if people want to check that out, brilliant. Um, Halloween 3, are you familiar with that? I'm not overly familiar with Halloween 3. I think it was one of those films that I did watch when I was younger, but it just never really uh, appealed to me, I don't think, in the sense where I remembered it fully. It had nothing to do with the Mike Myers kind of, uh, Michael Myers, I'd say Mike Myers, I think Austin Powers coming at me with a knife, you know. Uh, It had nothing to do with the Michael Myers, Laurie Strode kind of mythology. Instead, uh, it dipped into a completely new kind of storyline, which was uh, that a cult had managed to find sections of rock. It might have been from Stonehenge, but it, it alludes to kind of mythical runes uh they have placed these into kids halloween masks and when uh, an advert or uh, yeah i think it's when an advert plays on halloween um it triggers the piece of rock in the mask it kills they're looking to wipe out all of these children um something very different um carpenter i believe got maligned for taking the story away from uh you know michael myers and instead trying something different which I think is unfair because if that was the case, then we'd be looking at Friday the 13th levels of sequels. I mean, let's mm. be honest, Jamie. We're at that point right now, aren't we, with remakes, sequels, and spin-offs and stuff like that. Um, but I, delving into John Carpenter's work, it's there are cases where at the time it, his work got torn apart, his music got torn apart because John Carpenter – was a dab hand at creating, you know, those synth uh, wave kind of soundtracks. He created the theme for Halloween, you know. He did all of the music from the classic Escape from New York and stuff yes. like that. Um, I think he ended up roping in Ennio Morricone to do the soundtrack for the thing. And, and that soundtrack at the time got slammed. That movie in particular, uh, the original The Thing, not the remake that came out the original kurt russell keith david uh wilford brimley uh brilliant playing the uh you know the character blair you know that the typical i know what's going on here but i'm crazy people think crazy um that whole movie when it got released got absolutely torn apart because people thought that it was wanton and it's uh, approach to, to violence now have you watched the original thing yeah, I have, and I actually absolutely loved it. In comparison to yeah. a lot of other films now, especially horror gore, with, if you're looking at that sort of grindhouse, or one of the classic examples I always lean back to is examples like Saw and Hostel, where I feel like uh, the gratuitous violence actually takes away completely from the film uh, to such a point that it's uh, what is the point of this film because well, it mean, takes away from the storyline so graphically. Gorno, it, it, yeah. it was rightfully called called gorno or torture porn or what have you you know and i think the beauty about the violence that was in um the thing uh was that it was almost geiger hr geiger levels of art when it came to just the sheer body horror that came along with it now you think of body horror in the 80s you would probably think of david cronenberg with videodrome or Mm. with um you know the fly um you know jeff goldblum for life um but yeah and part of the reason that people have said that uh the thing got absolutely mauled was around the time was another alien movie that was out 
It was called E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and apparently a lot of people were upset because they liked their aliens of the benign, helpful, almost spiritual. I mean, I don't want to go into the fact that E.T. is just an allegory for Jesus Christ, you know, but, <laughs> but it is. There's a lot of documentation out there. And I think that people really did not like the concept of like a, a malevolent being coming down. And, and you know, it, it's incredible, you know. I mean, spoiler alert, give people a couple of seconds to cover their ears. That whole scene where they end up using the, the paddles to try and revive that guy and then the chest opens up, I think is just absolutely at a textbook study in a jump scare because we didn't know that was going to happen. Yep. It was just absolutely, you know, it was violent, but it wasn't grotesque amount of violence. The head thing crawling off the body. Um, it was creepy. The violence I found was creepy rather than like you mentioned with like all of that stuff, you know, Gorno, you know, with, with hostel and stuff like that. Um, Another movie that he ended up doing that ended up getting a bit of a, a critical uh, pouring or, you know, uh, just getting mauled um, was uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Wait, seriously, was that badly reviewed and criti- badly, like, critically reviewed at the time? Yeah, I mean, there's a theme with Carpenter's works where if you go back and look at the time, they weren't... G- given the amount of love and affection that retrospectively they have been given. I mean, the thing these days is viewed as an absolute watershed moment in horror movie. I would, in sci-fi, should I say, you know, I, it's up there with the likes of the first alien or James Cameron's aliens, you know, uh, yeah. up there with, a, you know, a, bit of a different alien movie but you know close encounters of a third kind and yes it's it's in there with like the, the whole body horror movement you know mm. um, but from what i have read big trouble in little china again um it made john carpenter completely disenchanted with hollywood for him this was meant to be his kind of throwback to the matinee movies that he grew up watching you know with the likes of um, Burt Lancaster or the action heroes at the time. It was meant to be his Indiana Jones, basically, Jamie. And and I thought it was a lot of fun. A little bit slow moving to begin with, but just a lot of fun. And again, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter joining forces for a movie is absolutely brilliant. You had The Bombshell, which was uh, uh, was uh, Kim Cattrall, uh, the older one from Sex in the City for younger uh, listeners. Um I I thought it was brilliant, a really good action adventure romp, uh, and again, it just got savaged upon release. But I'd be curious to find out what was released alongside that as well. The ET thing kind of uh, malignment, I can totally appreciate that, Jamie. But I, I'd love to know what was up um, alongside when. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China came out because we look at that now as a Sunday afternoon film almost, oh, don't we? I feel like Hollywood's a very fickle thing and it's quite interesting that I feel like Hollywood goes through stages of very much being cookie cutter for a couple of years and then for some weird reason there'll be a two year period almost where we'll see these interesting and fun films being released uh, they will get absolutely critically slammed 
Uh, but for some weird reason, there'll still be a lot of people going to watch the films themselves. And not only that, like you said, they'll get a, a reputation or a cult-like following that still develops and goes even further and further and further and ends up becoming part of popular culture, like this very film like you're talking about. Um, I just find it very strange. I feel like Hollywood has this thing, this problem with interesting and fun films. And Big Trouble in Little China, I feel like, is exactly one of them. And I think we may go through that stage once again. I make the comparison, and I know it's a terrible terrible comparison to um, even compare them in the same right, but it's like films like Guardians of the Galaxy, which uh, for the most part, when we look at superhero films, the main comparisons we make is Spider-Man, Batman, all those sorts of films. But Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy took that almost complete U-turn, and instead of going for the full cookie-cutter superhero film, they played something a little bit more fun, they went with a good soundtrack, and they played off a lot more interesting tropes than just the traditional superhero sort of, yeah. I guess, stuck standard thing, which I think yeah, is great. Which then set the tone for, you know, A, to demonstrate that they don't have to be big superhero characters that are constantly in, in the mindset of, you know, of the average cinema goer by that you mentioned batman superman i would say uh x-men uh definitely is in the uh the general pop kind of consciousness these days when it comes to you know movies and stuff like that definitely. um uh, iron man bit of a risk but you know iron man had his own saturday morning tv series at the x-men um guardians of the galaxy in theory if, unless you're a comic book fan um were a bunch of nobodies, you know, and even then being a comic book fan, you asked yourself, well, where's Adam Warlock in this, you know, and mm. where where are we going with this? And it, it was a fun romp. And I think now a lot of kind of movies are trying to take that kind of a fun kind of uh, slightly irreverent, slightly iconoclastic approach to what is the typical superhero movie trope. But then on the other side, you see now that, oh, well, these aren't big characters in the Marvel uh, Marvel Universe. And then you got uh, it then bellied over into Black Panther being made. You know, I know Black yeah. Panther was always being made, but then people realize Black Panther, well, he's not a huge character, even though he's like integral to many, many aspects of the comic book series. But, you know, as a superhero, you think, Oh, how's this one going to work out? And as it stands, it absolutely stormed it, didn't it? Yeah, um, totally. Big Trouble in Little China came out uh, at 2nd of July, 1986, I've just found out here. Nice. Um, it grossed $2.7 million in its opening weekend and then went on to gross $11.1 million, which was below the estimated budget of 19 to $25 million. Mm. Um, Bear in mind, though, we had that theory about the thing, E.T., what was coming out around the same time. Uh, James Cameron's Aliens was oh. in the middle of about – it was going to be released 16 days later. Um, with all love and respect to James Cameron, you couldn't compete again. No. James Cameron was on a hot run in the 80s, wasn't he? Just came away from Terminator um, and then – you know, grabbing aliens. He did the abyss in the eighties as well. He did so much. So, um, it's review scores. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China, eighty-two percent. But that's contemporary and modern reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a pretty shit review, for lack of a better term. <laughs> that's Ebert uh, though. He is un. 
undeniably brutal. Well, was, I should say, sorry. I mean, he, he brings up some good points, which, you know, is the fact that uh, special effects don't mean much unless we care about the characters who are, are surrounded by them. And in this movie, the characters often seem to exist only to fill up the foreground. And he felt that it was straight out of an era of Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu with no apologies and all the usual stereotypes. So in this day and age... Perhaps Big Trouble in Little China is problematic by today's standards. But, yeah. but I mean, like, you know, again, I would view that as more of a kind of – as a, a bit of a romp, isn't it? It's that Sunday afternoon kind of, you know, I'd what even we're going to watch on TV. I would even class it as slightly campy. And, oh, yeah, and, I, and that's what half the reason why I love that film is that the ridiculousness of it is part of the appeal. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely campy, you know. And, I mean, the run-up to Big Trouble in Little China, you had um, Assault on Precinct 13. Mm. I mean, we could go way back. We had Dark Star to begin with that Carpenter did. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween. Uh, He he did Elvis. I forgot he did Elvis. (laughs) What? He did The Fog, another movie that he did with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Then he did Escape from New York which is one of the best soundtracks in any movie ever made. Thank in fact, you. they, they um, I think it's Sacred Bones have re, uh, released on vinyl, and the A side is the theme for Halloween, the B side is the theme from Escape from New York, so that's a Christmas present I want. Uh, he went on to do The Thing, he did Christine, I'm right, gonna maybe. blame I'm gonna blame um, Stephen King for Christine rather than John Carpenter, uh, that was stephen king knee deep in cocaine at that time oh come on christine was great it was awesome i love it i'm gonna i'm gonna revisit it definitely (laughs) but i mean then you've got starman which had jeff bridges you know the dude big trouble in little china then he went out prince of darkness they live with the legendary rowdy roddy piper you know i come here to kick ass and chew gum and i'm all out of gum that that movie inspired that line and one of the most cringe-inducing fight scenes between two homeless people before bum fights did it and got into a lot of trouble for it. Um, but yeah, he John Carpenter, for all the things he's done that are great, he let's be honest, he's done some shit as well. I mean, he produced Halloween 3. I liked it, though. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he did Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase. Have you seen that? And Daryl Hannah and... Sam Neill's the best part of that. Sam Neill's the best part of a lot of things. But have you seen Memoirs of an Invisible Man? I, I'm currently looking it up now as we're speaking. And even just looking at the poster for this, this looks absolutely Pretty atrocious. Shit, Pretty bad. And Chevy Chase, like, I think Chevy Chase is at that point now where he is just an uber eccentric arrogant egotistical wanker which he was previous to that anyway but i think this is like prime time chevy chase where he became like a flaming racist which, oh well you know yeah. ladies, ladies and gentlemen uh you know i'd like to point you to uh, exhibit a chevy chase after years of cocaine abuse yes. and hubris he's not chilled out he, you know he chevy chase had some incredibly funny moments but not enough to outweigh the the pure arrogance that you read about him on set on Saturday Night Live, the way he treated people, uh, that god-awful talk show that he did as well. If you can go on YouTube and watch the clip of him practically begging the crowd 
to stand up and dance with Goldie Horn just looking completely confused. Uh, I'm absolutely going to link to that video on the website because it is humiliating, <laughs> you know. Um, he did it. Why he did Escape from LA, John Carpenter, which was just a rehash of Escape from New York. Um, yeah, and then Vampires, Ghosts of Mars. So, you know. Early John Carpenter, I'm going to sound like a hipster here. Early John Carpenter, I absolutely love, you know, and I'm glad that he really hasn't gotten involved with um, this Halloween remake because he's almost tainted his own career himself with some of the dross that he did. But Mm. um, early 80s John Carpenter, honestly, you you can't beat it. And uh, totally... I don't want to buzzfeed and put down top 10 John Carpenter movies, but I'm going to throw a couple of suggestions on the website. I think it's, it's worth it. I will um, say, Benji, you're going to hate me. Um, John Carpenter was actually involved with the new sequel. What did he do? Was he an executive producer? Thankfully, he was only an executive producer, but he doesn't was the composer. Uh, d- yeah, I guess so. It doesn't count if you're an executive producer, man. Why like, would he even guess... be involved in it, though? Ugh. Money. You need money, man. You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> I need money as much as the next person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm more than happy to still have a couple of Muzo releases on Spotify arbitrarily just to bring some stuff in you know but like executive producers basically for me it's the equivalent hey jamie look we're gonna remake a ipswich's baby factory album is that all right (laughs) with you yeah that's fine all right cool executive producer jamie larson and also one point i want to bring up mate how can you not like ghost of mars like anyone who appears in this film is obviously great like let's let's take a look at the lineup we've got ice cube man jason statham Come Natasha, on, like, that's Natasha Henstridge <laughs> of Species Fan. I watched Ghost of Mars, man, as part of my glut, you know. I mean, vampires, like James Woods, you know, from all accounts of these days. Not a very popular man in Hollywood. Not a lot of people are. James Wood is one of them, you know. But um, (laughs) the fact that it's basically vampire hunters that are sponsored from the Vatican, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's trashy director dvd stuff as far as i'm concerned you oh, know fully ghosts of mars also had jason statham in it didn't it yep yeah, sure did. I, I still find the concept of him as an actor bizarre just it, it, it weirds me out that he used to be an olympic diver a terrible one at that uh and then obviously a model previous to that and now he's just like this humongous superstar where i'm I, so yeah. glad that you brought up about him because he was in the commonwealth games when it was in auckland all those years ago. Oh, was that the appearance? Because I've seen I've seen the videos of him diving, and it is utterly hilarious. Because uh, I should I'm I'm going to try to avoid swearing, but he just absolutely messes it up every single dive, and it is it's 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 painful to watch because you you see the success that this man is going to have, obviously, and has got now. But at that time, he must have just been absolutely hating himself. Um. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. I mean, he was absolutely fantastic in like the first two um, Guy Ritchie movies, yes. you know, in in Snatch, in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. You know, yes, I am aware that Lock, Stock came before Snatch, but my mind was going other places. Um, I didn't even mind him in Revolver, which was what basically that movie was a uh, was a recruitment process for Cabala. <laughs> uh, some of the theories that I read 
some of the things that I read. Um, he is also doing what's he's doing a big movie coming up, isn't he? Is he? He's involved in a big movie coming up. I know there was that terrible one that he did, The Meg, uh, which I shouldn't say is terrible because I did have friends of mine that did work on that uh, in New Zealand, strangely enough. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know of oh, any other films that he's got coming out. Has he well, got, has he been Jason, announced for a big casting? Jason Statham's doing kind of like a spin-off from the Fast and Furious franchise along with um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Hmm. Um, I'm not a huge... That, but Guy Ritchie's doing some big ones now. A Guy Ritchie's actually directing Aladdin. What? Yeah, he's directing the, the Will Smith um, Disney Aladdin live-action version. I could have condensed that sentence down way quicker, but you get the, you get where I'm coming from. I, I'm just looking forward to what sort of casting he goes with. And not only that, uh, what is going to be the chat involved with Aladdin? Is it going to be like, you know, your typical East London geezer? Like, you're right, mate. You're right. You want to go for the gaff? All that sort of carry-on. Yeah? You're Aladdin, yeah? Like, I'd love to see what Guy Ritchie's concept is going to be. I, I shouldn't make the assumptions, but after Sherlock, I'm just going to assume that every uh, single character that appears in a Guy Ritchie film has an East London accent. Jamie, never do that accent ever again for as long as we podcast, okay? Please don't. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, moving swiftly along from that, let, let's just finish up because we talk about it, we write about it. It is wish fulfillment um, in portable form. The uh, Sony PlayStation Classic. Now, you've written a really nice piece on the website. Um, uh, how excited are you for it, Jamie? Are you as excited as me? It's it's funny because the more and more I research it, the more and more kind of, I know this sounds really terrible, apprehensive I almost am with this release. But in the same respect, uh, nostalgia is always key with all these sorts of things. And I will say my nostalgia radar is uh, through the roof because I know about you, but how important was the PlayStation for you growing up? Um, See, th- this is a weird one because I had a Sega Saturn. before i moved over to the playstation but i traded my sega sand for a playstation because uh, you could tell that it was going to be a cultural phenomenon uh, I, I kind of regret it because i've been revisiting sega satins i mean i just got a brand new sega Saturn, well secondhand sega Saturn through the post uh today and then Surprise, surprise, my Japanese uh, Sega Saturn decided to work at the same time today. But um, but no, I I was very, very much uh, a Sega kid, but Sony was definitely uh, definitely brought me on board when they when they came out. I mean, like I even enjoyed Battle Arena Toshin Den. Um, it was Tekken that absolutely sold it to me. Some might say Virtual Fighter 2 was the better game, but there was just something cool and easy to uh, you know, about Tekken um, that came out. I mean, uh, what about yourself? When the, when the PlayStation first came out, were you, were you playing any consoles before that, or was it perhaps the first console you picked up? It actually wasn't. The first console I ever picked up was actually a Sega Mega Drive, which nice. to this day, I similar sort of scenario, I heavily regret the fact that I ever got rid of it because I had a collection of about 30 to 40 games, oh. um, which 
to me in that in that time was just amazing. Uh, to be honest, my parents actually played it a hell of a lot more than I did, uh, oh just because God. I was quite young. Especially my mum, which is quite funny. My mum loved the Sega, uh, but slowly, obviously, moved to the PlayStation. And I will say, seeing that gray uh, green gray box under the Christmas tree and knowing what it was was possibly one of the most significant points of my life. And that sounds really sad, but it actually was uh, oh, because, oh, like, you know, like the advertising for Sony is just immense. Like the way, I mean, that, yeah. When we posted on Instagram the opening, you know, the boot oh, screen. How iconic is that? Homebrew, the New Zealand hip hop group Homebrew, they sampled that opening, uh, the, the boot loading uh, music. Um, it was just a symphony of excitement when that first, you know, when everything was loading up to begin with, you know, it was just. Uh, I remember the first time I heard that, you know, that music loading up. It was my, around my mate's house, and he put on Destruction Derby, uh, and it was just, oh my god! You just knew it was the future. It just knew the future was now, didn't you? I mean, just going back to your article that that you wrote. I mean, it is a very good selection of uh, of titles to begin with. Battle of the Den, Cool Borders 2, Destruction Derby, Final Fantasy 7, the original Grand Theft Auto, um, Intelligent Cube, which I remember originally was released as Karashi. Yes, I remember don't it released as that as well. Don't know why they've gone with Intelligent Cube, but never mind. Jumping Flash, Metal Gear Solid, Mr. Driller, Abe's Odyssey, Rayman, Revelations Persona, Director's Cut of Resident Evil, Ridge Racer Type 4. Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, Siphon Filter, Tekken 3, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, Twisted Metal, and Wild Arms. But you do bring up a good point about where are these other titles, these standout titles. Now, Gran Turismo, I thought there'd be no problems with Gran Turismo. It seems to be a Sony stalwart when it comes to their video game library. Um, Tomb Raider again. I, I can actually elaborate on why Gran Turismo is such an issue for them. If oh, you'd go like. on, yeah, go yeah. on, so man. Definitely, it's, it's quite an interesting one because yeah, I was in the same position as you, uh, thinking why would they not include Gran Turismo? Like you said, it was one of their big mainstays. It's been one of their big titles for every release of their new consoles as well. Because like when they announce a new console, I guarantee you that they always announce a new version of Gran Turismo. Uh, but the yeah. reason being, uh, they can't actually get the licensing for the brands and makes of cars. That is half the reason why. Gran Turismo has been left off uh, because they can't come to an agreement with a lot of these uh, car manufacturing companies, which is actually quite sad because it's free advertising for them. You would think that they would want to be involved in these sorts of games, but obviously not. Music um, licensing, did, understandable. Cars? Yeah, did, I was going to say, like, did I read right that there's problems with the music licensing? Because, I mean, Gran Turismo had some absolute belters. Oh, Gran yeah. Turismo had garbage on their soundtrack. They had Foo Fighters on the soundtrack. They had so much that the soundtrack almost itself became as integral as as the game wasn't it and the grand uh gran turismo 2 brought out um the invention of the dual shot controller didn't yes. it and uh the other game that i think uh was quite disappointing not to see was wipeout which once again similar sort of deal i actually think the soundtrack is what made uh that game in particular so good Agreed. Uh, one of the big tracks obviously being firestarter and the prodigy like Oh, I'm going to be seeing them actually in a couple of days. Uh, actually, tomorrow. Uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to be released. Uh, so well, I'm seeing them on the 14th. On a Monday, of November. Too, so you're gonna you're gonna see them this week. Yeah, yeah I'm but... seeing them this week. Uh, and yeah, honestly, riding through the space age tracks that they had in Wipeout and hearing that song just made everything so good. So I am disappointed to see that. But 
this list is pretty good, regardless. Like, is, what would you say is, is one of the standouts for you? What would be one of the games if you could go back uh, well, I mean, and play it? I mean, again, like we we talked about this, we you know we we talked a little bit about this, but it, it, it's such a big thing for me and you, Jamie, that I will talk about it until the cows come home, you know. But um, we, you know, it, for me, Metal Gear Solid, that's an an easy one. But um, also Super Puzzle Fighter Two Turbo was uh, an inclusion on that list of games that I I honestly thought. This, that's the wild card there, you know. Jumping Flash has its fans, you know. Siphon Filter and Twisted Metal has its fans. But Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, for me, is going to do for that what um, Tetris did for the Game Boy, you know. It, it's going to have, if you're a puzzle fan and you like columns and stuff like that, then definitely Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo bringing together, you know, Street Fighter characters along with kind of like the puzzle kind of bejeweled blitz aspect. I reckon that's going to bring a whole bunch of newer fans um, to that series, you know. Um, but what about yourself? I mean, glaring over the obvious, you know, Final Fantasies and stuff like that, what's going to be the game on that list that you put on the website that that you're looking forward to that you thought, oh, actually, I haven't played that in a while. I'm looking forward to it. If I'm being totally honest, and this is probably very off-kilter to my usual playing, uh, it would have to be Cool Borders 2. It was a title that a lot of people, I think, it's, it's weird. It has a massive cult following, I being one of the people that is one of the, the part of this following. Uh, and it's purely just from a nostalgic point of view. I used to play that game, like, horrendously, horrendously much. Like, I used to play it so often uh, to the point that uh, I'm sure my parents probably thought I was reasonably insane because I used to play it for six <laughs> hours straight. Uh, but yeah, it was one of the standout <sighs> games for me. That and the original Grand Theft Auto. I absolutely loved it. And it's probably quite concerning the fact that I played this when I was 10 years old, but I just loved that game. It was so good. I guarantee you're going to see short-term people thrashing the living daylights out of Tekken 3. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I reckon long-term you're going to see people delving into... I mean, Final Fantasy VII, Metal Gear Solid, and Abe's Odyssey, those are some pretty, you know, those are games that you can complete them, but you're always going to go back because especially with Abe's Odyssey, if you don't save the rest of Abe's kind, then you're not going to get the perfect ending, you know? So those those are the the long term kind of games which people will probably delve back into. But you and I both know now we're now we're older, a bit more long in the uh, a bit more long in the tooth, so to speak. Uh, I don't know about <laughs> you, but I'm a hell of a lot more grayer. Um, it, it's going to be almost like the um, Super Nintendo flashback consoles, you know, where I could play Final Fantasy on that, but in actuality, I just want to get together with some friends and thrash super mario kart you know exactly same with the mega drive you know i could play mortal kombat to my heart's content but in all honesty i'm probably going to go and thrash a copy of micro machines especially with the version of the mega drive flashbacks where you can actually put your own cartridges in i mean is is there going to be the opportunity to play your own discs on this playstation or is it purely just going to be from a flash memory um aspect well, sadly, that is the case, and I think that was the one thing that has made me apprehensive about purchasing this, is uh, the whole disk drive, which I thought, I was like, yes, as soon as I saw the disk drive, I was like, this is going to be something that's going to be awesome, because people are going to be able to play their old games, 
And then later learned that this was just an, an aesthetic choice uh, because, of course, it makes up the majority of the console itself than the original. Uh, but no, the disk drive does not work, which I think is the one takeaway that I will say to anyone who's considering buying this. Don't buy this if you think this is going to be a PlayStation 1 console because it is not. It is purely an emulator. And actually, uh, to further put insult to injury in something that I may actually include on the article because I only read it today, is yeah. uh, one of the things that actually has gone into this console itself uh, was actually the emulator that is used for this classic PlayStation was actually an open source emulator that was made by PlayStation fans. Well, that completely flips it upside. That uh, completely changes everything then, doesn't it? I mean, I'm still excited to get it, but... Oh, yeah, fully. I mean, if we're... I mean, emulation is a conversation you have to be careful about. It's a dirty it's, word. It's it a very a, dirty word. It is a dirty word, you know, but... I mean, a lot of these titles you could potentially, if you know where you're looking and you've got a PSP, you could emulate a lot of these titles, you know. I mean, that that does change a lot of aspects the way that I'm looking at this console now, you know. If, if it was purely Sony, you know, Sony development driven and instead of just using uh, open source software then what's to stop other people now just using that open source kind of software and developing their own versions and including you know a lot more games to it you know so i think there is a very high possibility of that and i think the interesting thing that comes with the story in general is obviously uh, many people who obviously read gaming news and everything else like this uh, know that playstation has always taken a pretty hard stance against piracy even uh, the way that they uh, copyright protect their discs uh, themselves was quite revolutionary in its own right uh, and it's just quite interesting to see them take uh, a completely different tune by obviously using fan created emulators uh, obviously it is going to probably cause a lot of controversy when it is eventually released uh, but the, for the most part I think it's also quite uh, amazing in the sense where Sony has obviously recognised uh, that the fans are so dedicated that they were willing to put in the time and effort to create possibly what is one of the best emulators you can get in the industry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, going back to obviously the SNES uh, classic mini console which came out last year, uh, Nintendo actually developed their own emulators because uh, they weren't willing to obviously use what they would consider a lesser product. So this is kind of interesting in a way where I'd almost say Sony has so much trust and their fans, that they're willing to allow themselves to use this emulator, which was obviously fan-operated. It's been tested. It's been used for years and years and years. Uh, so I think it's almost a nod. It's almost like a salute to the fans saying, hey, guys, like, we know you've been buying our stuff for years, and we've been stealing your money. Well, not really stealing the money. Come on, we've all bought the games purely yeah, for the no, reason we of have, entertainment. We have. Yeah. But I, I think it's almost like a thanks, guys, for all your hard work. This is what we're doing for you. And I think it's kind of cool. No, I, I I agree, but I mean, you know, you can't help but be a little bit kind of cynical when when oh, you yeah. find when you get told about it's open source emulation software that's being used. Um, that it might be the case of well, this might be a very very interesting couple of months when it comes to the emulation, uh, you know, the emulation community, you know, because I mean, looking at the advances Sega Saturn emulation has had. We're now on track for you know having a Sega Saturn emulator that will actually play games in a in a decent kind of speed. You know, so if um 
if Sony have been all embracing, saying, look, there's open source stuff, how about we chuck them a little bit of source code as well so they can refine the emulation? Uh, you know, why? what's to stop Sega finally, and I mean finally, doing a version of the Sega Saturn, you know? So it's going to be interesting. I mean, um, I'm looking forward to um, your edits on uh, on the post itself on the website. It's, it definitely inspired me to delve a little bit further for one of the articles that will be coming up in the next uh, week, um, which will be my kind of uh, investigation into the world of uh, reproduced games from when I first used to get a hold of bootleg games from from a market in Newark to all the way now how there are Etsy shops that have these pristine, perfect-looking discs that are actually CDRs. Are um, we allowed to talk about this? this? Is this legal? It's not. <laughs> it's again a very, very grey area that uh, that again is something that uh, I've been looking into. I mean, you know, it, it go it just extends from like the cr- shitty CDR that's being sold. You know, oh yeah, Croc Eight or whatever. Oh game, mate, you know, oh Croc Eight, Croc Eight, Croc Eight. But uh, but it extends from that to actually people, Jamie, are taking old cartridges and flashing them with software, um, EEPROM software, in order to create their own games. And I I'll, I'll, will leave this topic um, open to, you know, so a, a little bit of getting the, uh, getting the taste buds rolling, get you salivating a little bit. I will be looking <laughs> into how they actually in, inserted Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into Streets of Rage 2. That is a thing that has been developed through the reproduced uh, gaming community, you know, and it all stems from emulation and bits and pieces like that. Um, But that's something, unfortunately, that people will have to read rather than listen to. And that brings us to the end of another Icky Procast. Yes, we we went ahead and shortened the name down. Um, We had you for two hours last time round. We don't want to have you for any longer than we have to. Some of us, uh, we've got to go and have food and unwind for the day. Uh, uh, But hopefully, by listening to this podcast, you yourselves have unwound and relaxed for the day. So, um, as always, visit the website, ekagaipro.wordpress.com. Those social media platforms, Instagram, Ekipro X, uh, sorry, Ekagai X Pro, because someone took the other screen name. Uh, on Twitter, Jamie, because you're a fiend when it comes to using the Twitter, where can you find us? And that's at Ekagai Pro. Easy as that. Easy as that. And look, uh, Jamie, as always, it's been a blast. We'll do this again next week. You go and enjoy the rest of your night, mate. Oh, thank you so much. And you too, man. Always a pleasure. And uh, to those listening at home, thanks for joining us once again. And we will, uh, well, you'll hear from us next time round. Take care.